This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there. I hope you're all doing well. Well, it's nearly the middle of March, believe it or not, and we are finally on the back end of winter. Many species of birds are already leaving their overwintering habitats in Central and South America and migrating north. It's time to start thinking spring. Spring is getting closer every day. Are you ready? Here are a few things to consider. Do you have a rain gauge? A rain gauge will give you a pretty accurate idea of how much rainfall you are getting and will help you decide if you need to do supplemental watering of your native trees, shrubs, and plants, especially recently established natives. Rain gauges are in short supply come springtime, so now is the time to order. And while we're on the subject of water, think about buying some rain barrels to capture and hold precious rainwater that you can then use to water your trees and flowers. Go the extra mile and buy barrels made from recycled plastic. Go even further by buying soaker hoses and installing them on your water hoses for slow drip watering that gets right down to the roots. Both the barrels and soaker hoses sell out fast in the spring, so again, now is the time to buy. Planning on adding another raised bed for your vegetable garden? Order your metal corners and lumber now. Raised bed kits sell out fast in gardening catalogs and at gardening centers come the warmer weather. Right now is a good time to survey your yard. Are flocks of migrating birds stopping on your property to eat native berries and nuts? Or are they flying right by? If so, locate some empty spaces you can fill with native shrubs and trees that offer food for wildlife during the cold weather. The time to order these plants is now, in order to avoid hearing those three dreaded words, out of stock. Have you perhaps thought about adding a few more water sources to your yard to benefit the birds and pollinators? Adding a pedestal bird bath or two can really help birds during the hottest part of the summer or during drought-like conditions. Again, ordering now is the key to getting the best selection. Roughly one-third of the Earth's mass is in a state of desertification or is heading in that direction. Is it possible to stop and even reverse desertification? Judith D. Schwartz shows us that it is possible. She is the author of the new book, The Reindeer Chronicles, a collection of stories about individuals and communities coming together to heal the earth. She is here today for part two of our talk about the amazing ability of nature to rebound from even large-scale ecosystem damage. Could you talk about Alan Savory for a moment in this whole idea of holistic management? It just it seems so counterintuitive to me that if you if you help the soil, you create water. How does that work? Yeah, well, so Alan Savory, I should introduce that he is a wildlife biologist from Zimbabwe who developed the, the framework of holistic management, which 
most people know of that of holistic management as the use of livestock as a vehicle for large-scale land restoration. But the question that you're asking is about soil and water and why having healthy soil, which is essentially the project of holistic planned grazing, is to improve the soil, why that is so important for the water. I like to think about soil as water infrastructure because that is how nature designed it. So when you have healthy soil that is rich in organic matter, that soil is holding on to water. That soil is a sponge. With healthy soil that's full of biodiversity, that water is moving through the soil profile because the soil is rich in carbon and that soil is well aggregated, which means that there are poor spaces for the water to move through. And that soil has a lot of biodiversity and biodiversity also creates spaces. So if you have earthworms moving through the soil, that worm is carving like space for water to flow. So that's really important because if you don't have healthy soil, well, in a place like Zimbabwe, where it gets very, very hot, the water is either evaporating immediately or it is running off, which means carrying a lot of the nutrients with it or pollutants, depending on the situation. And yeah, so here we have less of the problem of the water immediately evaporating, but it certainly does run down. So water can go in several directions. It can go deeply into the soil. It can go up into evaporation, or which means that you don't have the use of that water, or it can run off. It can go sideways. And we want the water to move down into the soil. And as it does flow sideways, to do so slowly through the plants and the soil. And the motion of hooves on this land is also creating little gullies and indentations for water to sit. Right, to, to pool. Right. Yes. Yeah. And then, so the managed impact of the livestock helps to build the soil in many, many ways. So one is that kind of hoof action, creating little areas for the moisture to pool, then there's the hoof action of pressing in decaying plant matter so that it can be broken down by microorganisms and become a part of the soil. And this is really important in areas known as brittle landscapes where they have a rainy season and a dry season. So we don't get as much of a problem of the plant matter that doesn't get broken down because we have moisture throughout the year so that it does get broken down. But in, in places where they have a dry season, that vegetation just kind of sits on top and it blocks the opportunity for new growth. And then it, it, it just causes lots of problems, including dead vegetation becomes fire risk. So then the waste of the animal adds moisture and nutrients to the soil it fertilizes the soil. So all of these different things that the animal 
animals are doing help restore the soil. I've even seen people finding that the saliva of the animal has some microbial impact that helps to, you know, has a biological function, lots of different things. And then I know people are concerned about methane, but just the the way nature works is just so incredible that the cattle, they emit some methane from their mouth and their mouths are on the ground. And in the ground, when you have healthy soil, are bacteria that break down methane. So we've got this miniature cycle creating this nice balance right there. Okay. So talking about Alan Savory and this whole idea of holistic management, I have to say, you know, it's a re-education for me because I had it drummed into my head that grazing animals do nothing but damage to ecosystems. But that's really not true. It's really about the timing of it. If the herd is moved to different areas, according to certain timetables that are beneficial, it's actually the best thing for the soil and for the water in the area, correct? Absolutely. So again, this is managing the animals in the way that they had functioned in a wild system. So in times past, grazing animals were managed by the predators because they would be in an area for a bit, but then they would be located by, if, if we're talking Africa, by lions and, and cheetah, and then they would be kept on the move and they would trample, they would, they would move. So when they say, they talk about herd impact, so it's not just like a cow moseying to another area. I mean, that they're, they bunch up together and then they move en masse to a place where they are safe. And that's important because they really are trampling in plant matter. I mean, you know, they're like really having an, an impact. So when you look at an area where animals had been and, and then had been moved, it, it, it looks kind of trashed. But that's how it was in nature, that, that what looks like damage really is jumpstarting many biological processes. So in holistic plant grazing, the human takes the role of the predator because how we have altered our landscapes is we don't have systems where there are native predators and native herbivores. You know, we have roads, we have cities. So those populations aren't interacting the way that they had in the past. Right. Could you talk a moment about, I was just going to say, I don't know if you know this, but you can actually get a graduate certificate in hydro diplomacy at Oregon State University now. I didn't know that. Learning that to sounds ne- pretty cool. negotiate and be diplomatic about, you know, which I'm sure in the coming years is going to be an all out war for water, possession of water sources. So unless we, you know, collectively do something soon, but Could you talk about that predator-prey culture that you mentioned in the book? Oh, this is a whole different understanding of predator and prey. Okay, so in the book, The Reindeer Chronicles, I ended up encountering situations where indigenous populations, that colonialism and or industrial agriculture 
has harmed the landscape and interfered with people's ability to engage with the landscape in a healthy, productive way as they had for a very long time. So now we are moving to Norway, okay? So I went to Norway in 2017 to speak at a symposium on indigenous knowledge. And my topic was the global ecology of grazing. So as you could tell, I had a lot to say about proper grazing management and how it has transformed landscapes in Mexico, in Zimbabwe, in the US. But when you go to Norway, you're dealing with a whole different thing because you're dealing with reindeer. So when I was in Norway, there was a law case that had captured the nation's imagination. And the situation was that the Norwegian government had said that there were too many reindeer. They were damaging the fragile ecology of the tundra up north and that all herders had to cull their herds, cull their animals, reduce the number that they had. And this was very upsetting. And A, for people who have been moving with their herds for, I don't mean like nomadically, but you know they had been managing these animals and that was so central to their culture. A young ranger herder named Jovset Antesara, he was 23 years old and he said, I can't do this. I'm only starting. So I only have a certain number of animals. My operation is marginal as it is. If I call my animals, then I won't be able to survive as a herder. And if I can't survive as a herder, all the other herders that are young like me will not be able to either. And our culture will die. So he resisted. And he kept winning case after case after case against the government. And then finally, at the end of that year, long after my trip, he lost. And that's really, really sad. But several things, just just for your information, those animals were not killed. What he did was he gave those animals to a family member but I don't think he is actively hurting anymore. And another reason that this became such a kind of, you know, big cultural attention, it was really in the, in the public eye, is that his sister, Marit An Sara, is a, an internationally known conceptual artist. So she was creating these installations that were really pointing out the violence of the decree by the government. She had a pile of reindeer skulls with a Norwegian flag on top. She had this incredible screen where she threaded reindeer skulls so that you it looks like a, a screen. And she even brought that to the courthouse where her brother was undergoing this trial taking part in this trial about whether he could keep his reindeer, but she's, she's really a a powerhouse. So I explored this and what I explored was the question, are there too many reindeer? Because that's what people in Norway have been hearing 
but is this true? So as it turns out, it's not true. As it turns out, the reindeer are not harming the way they are managed. They are not harming the landscape. Rather, they are maintaining the landscape of the tundra. So this is how that works, is that in the summer, the summer grazing areas, reindeer are browsers. So they are nibbling at the shrubs and trees that are beginning to get more and more established in the far north as that region warms. But in nibbling the trees, which are with, which have dark leaves, those dark leaves are absorbing heat. They have a lower reflectivity or albedo, so they're absorbing heat. So by managing and trimming this kind of vegetation, they're actually keeping the landscape cool because the native heathland, the heath is light in color. So that tends to reflect the heat. So that's the dynamic in the summer herding season. But with the winter grazing, when the reindeer are moved in large numbers across the snow, they are trampling down the snow. Now that sounds like a negative thing. You know, I look out and, you know, the snow is beautiful when it's untouched, but snow acts as an insulator. So when the reindeer are crushing the snow, that means that it's no longer insulating and the soil stays frozen. So again, that is helping to maintain that cold ecosystem. So they were wrong. Now where the predator and the prey culture come in is that at this particular symposium, there was a Sami legal scholar named Andy Sombe. He is quite brilliant and he gave this talk that is online <laughs> when a predator, I can't remember, is when a prey culture meets a predator culture or when a predator culture meets a prey culture. And it was brilliant. By using the Aesop's fable of the wolf and the lamb, he used that as a kind of allegory for colonial societies moving into where indigenous societies are and using different rhetorical tricks to gain power and really kind of crush the agency of these people. So throughout this, the exploration that was my book, I saw this happen again and again, where colonial powers and decision makers, governments, and modern industrial agriculture would come in and really make it hard for these indigenous cultures to thrive in ways that they had lived on the landscape and maintained their landscape for long, long periods of time. And in Hawaii, it's really, really harsh because what happened was that because of the lovely climate, agricultural and chemical companies could test 
different products, different chemicals, and GMOs year-round, and that did extraordinary damage to the land and to the people. And that's really, really unconscionable. The positive thing I can say is that I think more and more, less so in Norway, but in many places, people are turning to indigenous people for their knowledge with respect. And while we can't at this moment undo what has been done, we can listen and learn and yes, treat these people with who are our elders on the land with tremendous respect. Yes, I was just shocked to read about Poison Valley in Hawaii and how the school children were affected. It was really horrible. Yeah. So I was on Maui and this was on another island, a smaller island. Um, um, and they were testing and it was kind of like, you know, unfettered activity because there was a lot of combinations of chemicals So, you know, with the testing protocols, there might be particular protocols for one chemical or two chemicals at most, but there was a lot of combination of chemicals. And also they weren't taken into consideration that the breeze changes throughout the day. You know, in Hawaii, you get ocean breezes. And so maybe they set things up assuming that the wind was flowing in one direction, but then it shifts. And in one case it was shift, it was, it was blowing right into school areas. So there were people that were, you know, their, their children were suffering because of that. They were getting headaches and having trouble breathing. And then the elderly people were suffering from kidney disease. So it's, it's really horrible what went on. It, it really was. Right. So you make it so plain in your book that government and corporations not only can render an indigenous culture invisible or, or cause them to lose their voice, you know, when it comes to negotiating for use of the resources on their land, it can also entirely take away their livelihood as well. I mean, you talk about the Niger Delta people in Mali and how their fishing was disrupted so badly, they started selling rare and endangered birds to make money. Yeah, I, mean, I almost this, fell off my chair when I read that. Yeah, so so the filmmaker that I mentioned, John D. Liu, did some work. He was He went on a trip to Mali with the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, the IUCN. And he was just stunned by the incredible, like natural wealth of this region, because this is a a land where the water comes in for a period of time and the region floods and then it recedes. And so that there were even trees that had adapted to this particular kind of regime. It's, so th- there were there was a lot of real wealth of nature and people used to ride the river up seasonally. So they had different livelihoods depending on the season and where they were. And a lot of this area was dammed. 
Okay, so there were dams put up so that the water wasn't flowing in the way that it had. And this was creating a situation where the fish were not as abundant. So when the fishermen couldn't fish for their livelihoods, they were killing the birds that migrated through this area. You know, this is a terrible story, but it's also a real cautionary tale because all over the world, people are put into a situation where in order to participate in the local or regional or global economy, they need to, or they find themselves forced to degrade the ecosystem upon which they depend. So this was a case in Saudi Arabia as well, because they were not able to feed their herds of camel and sheep and goats through the herding that they had always done. So they would feed their animals through buying feed. But in order to get the money to buy the feed, they were cutting down the trees to sell for firewood and for coal for um, restaurants in the nearby cities. So they were worsening the situation because the fewer trees they had, the more their water would run off the landscape and the harsher the desert conditions were. And so I, we really need to look at how people live and what they need to live and what the impacts are of projects being done in these areas and the, the actions of governments and, and corporations, because we often don't look at the unintended consequences. Right. So now Alan Savory runs through all three of your books. So it's, he seems to be the path or the way ultimately through all of this. Could you just maybe for our readers, tell us basically what he has found in his work. And I know he's spent years trying to perfect this model of holistic management as sort of an example that, you know, we could follow here in the U.S. Yeah, so holistic management is really a decision-making model, um, approach to, to looking at what are the unintended consequences, to look at what kind of situation or what kind of results do we want and working back from there. So, so, so that's very helpful. Personally, for me, it was my initial window into the complexities of how nature worked. So the way this began for me is that I had been writing about economics and writing about the connection between economics and ecology and was continually haunted by the notion that in our economic model, nature has a value of zero. So in my explorations of this, I encountered a fact about climate that I had no idea about. And that is that over time, more CO2 has gone into the atmosphere from soil compared to the burning of fossil fuels. Now, I had no idea that carbon was released 
from soil by improper agricultural practices. But I was totally seized by this. I, it led me to write a book about soil, basically, and understanding how soil presents a route towards addressing so many of our complex challenges. Now, the reason that led me to Alan Savory is that back then, 10 years ago, the only people who were talking about soil and climate connections was those in the community of holistic management, that by building the soil, by restoring the grasslands, building the soil, which creates the conditions for these grasslands to thrive. And grasslands can have soil that goes and roots that go deep, meters and meters and meters deep. And by managing the animals in a way that's building the soil, which is also restoring the water cycle and an understanding that when we talk about climate, we've neglected the role of water the water cycle in managing heat and facilitating nature's cooling processes. So, so really the importance of Alan Savory's work is that it was a window in to all of these really essential processes and factors that are often not talked about when we talk about climate change. So Alan's work is very much about how do we manage complexity? And yeah, it gives his work gives us incredible insights on how to do so and to accept that we are dealing with complexity as opposed to imposing our will in a way where we have control because we don't have control. So for one example about holistic management is that when you are writing up the management plan, it is always in pencil because you know that there are always factors beyond your control that will mean that you need to adjust your expectations and what you're going to do. I love the confessional aspect of all of your books, particularly the Reindeer Chronicles, where you you actually join cowgirl school. Yes, I go to the yeah. new cowgirl camp. I think it's that a huge amount, a huge percentage of our farmland is going to be transitioning ownership in the next few decades. But more and more women are going into farming. And a lot of women are interested in ecological farming and in ranching and managing animals. And I can say, and this isn't a confession I made in my book, but I was going to write about it in my book is that we had sheep on our property for the summer and it was so wonderful and lovely and working with animals can be very, very joyous. And while I think I would find it kind of intimidating to be around a bunch of big cows, sheep I could deal with. Right. So what was it like going to cowgirl school? Oh, it was fabulous. I mean, you're hanging around a bunch of women that, that, our fellow soil nerds and have the same interests as you. And you get to try out all of these things. You get to, to see, well, you get to see how people 
work with the animals and learn how how to manage animals in a in a less in a low stress way and yeah it's loads of fun yeah hanging yeah. out on a ranch is loads of fun yeah and you um i i noticed you also talk about not only does timely and correct grazing replenish the soil and help the water cycles it also prevents fire can you talk about that for a second oh yeah this is so important that in the past, our plants have been managed by herbivores, plant-eating animals. And as I mentioned before, herbivores have been managed by predators. So we need to give animals a chance to manage plants. So if you've got areas where you have a rainy season and a dry season, if you have a rainy season and the plants are growing, how, how you don't want the, those plants to be trees and brush and grasses, to be standing there drying out ripe for fire. You just, yeah. So there are lots of examples of people who are using animals to manage for fire. And there is someone in um, that I am often in touch with and who I've written about in Australia. He manages a tract of land that is the size of the five boroughs of New York City. I mean, in Australia, these these cattle stations are huge. But so he's been working with cattle, but also there are wild donkeys in the region of Western Australia that most people, including the government, consider pests. But Chris Hengler understands that they are important allies in fire management because they can create fire breaks. You just, the danger of having lots of drying out vegetation cannot be overstated. And in California, people are doing this. We need more of it, actually. We need a lot more of it because we have let, in California in particular, we have been suppressing fire so long that we have so much vegetation that is tinder for fire. And in the past, back to indigenous communities, there have been cold burns that these people have used over time to create resilience to fire. And we need to learn from these people. And that is, of course, that's the case in North America. And it is absolutely the case in Australia as well. Could you talk a moment about compassionate conservation? Yeah, yeah. So, so that I, I was very interested in what Chris was talking about with the with the wild donkeys. So these were animals that were brought to Australia in the late 1800s as that land was being explored by colonial populations, and then when you were able to use trucks you know, and other vehicles for, as you didn't need the pack animals, then they were just kind of left to be on their own. So we, there are all these wild donkeys roaming around the rural areas of Australia. And the government really has had a policy of eradicating these animals. Mm-hmm. But there's a movement of compassionate conservation, which poses the question Who are we to decide what is natural and what is native 
in terms of animals, like that there's a moment in time when white people came to a place where, and that's what we say, what, what was present there is what we say is wild. However, there have always been migrations of animals and changes and changes. We just need to open it up and to accept that all animals have a right to their existence and to understand that in Australia, what some people see as these alien populations, I mean, it is complicated because there are animals that were brought to Australia that have created incredible damage and competition for with, with the local animals. But if you really look at it, some animals that are in Australia we can understand their thriving in Australia as a great rewilding event in that they are filling an ecological niche that had been unfilled in that landscape for thousands of tens of thousands of years. So in Australia, the great megafauna died out the large mammals died out at the end of the Pleistocene period around 40,000 years ago. So there's been this ecological gap, a niche that wasn't filled. But in Australia, there are the wild donkeys, there are Cape buffalo or water buffalo, I don't remember, and there are camels. And they let's look at how they are functioning on the landscape and see what they might be doing. But the thing about the compassionate conservation is, you know, are judging what animals do or don't belong on a landscape. Many of these animals, once it is decided that they don't belong there, they are subject to incredibly cruel treatment. Oh, and in Australia also the dingoes, they are predators and I know that many people in Australia find them as pests, but actually they play a very important ecological role and contribute to thriving biodiversity. So yeah, just the way that we tend to bring our, we, we project our values onto animals and for the sake of the animals and for the sake of the ecosystems and the sake of our own spirit to really welcome how they are on the landscape and and understand them and certainly treat them more humanely. Right. So could you just talk a moment about the, the whole aspect of psychology of this? We all seem to have such a defeatist attitude that, you know, we've we've harmed the land. There's no going back. We just have to try to somehow survive through all these droughts and floods and fires. And you're pointing out there's a different way. But why do you think everyone is so concretely holding on to this idea that we can't fix the earth? Well, we haven't talked about it that way. I think I think there are many factors. One is the nature of news, which is that when something goes wrong, it's news and, and it's worth making note of. But when something is working, it's not worth mentioning. So we come to really not understand how nature works. That's one factor. And also a lot does come down to our economic model that 
everything is about scarcity. So we we tend to focus on scarcity. We tend to focus on problems as opposed to abundance. So I've learned from many people and many people that I've interviewed in the indigenous communities where the focus is on abundance. And so, you know, when you look at things going right or things going wrong, I think that we can look at abundance in terms of possibilities because we have abundant possibilities. And I think it's important to to look at that and engage with that. And that gives us hope. I mean, it's, well, as John Liu, the filmmaker said, it's a lot more fun to focus on function than dysfunction. And if we start focusing on function and how to enhance ecological function, first of all, we see that we can do it. Second of all, it's joyful and it leads to, more ideas of how things can be done. We can all learn from each other. And I think it's a psychological shift that I would hope that we can make. And one thing that I've gotten very excited about is that we are embarking on the UN decade on ecosystem restoration, which has a focus on we can do this and let's do this as opposed to the way that many of our policy discussions have been so problem-oriented as opposed to solutions-oriented. And when it comes to ecosystem restoration, I feel it, I feel really strongly, it's important to bring that into the climate conversation because we have thus far neglected the role of functioning ecosystems in climate regulation. And I think that bringing this all together creates tremendous opportunities, not only for hope that someone's going to do it, but for opportunities for us all to engage. Because restoring ecosystems at any scale matters. Well, Judith, I want to thank you for joining us today on Bird Hugger. Thank you so much. I want to thank Judith D. Schwartz for all of that wonderful information. You can find her book, The Reindeer Chronicles, at Amazon.com, the Barnes & Noble website, or your local bookstore. For more information about Judith, visit her website at judithdschwartz.com. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on one-third for the birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye.